Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Down the Line. I'm Brandon Hunter, joined as always by Kyle Betts. It is leak day, February 29, 2024. How are you doing, Kyle? Doing great, Brevin, like you mentioned. Uh, leak day and um, it, it's kind of like the Olympics, like a presidential election. Only comes along uh, once every four years, so uh, pretty uh, unique when it does come around, but... Yeah, um, interesting to uh, have another uh, big week in sports here, Brevin, and we're here to break it all down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got the NFL Combine uh, started today. You got uh, the Cogniz- Cognizant Classic. The first round is underway um, in Florida. Uh, um, and golf is pretty much where we're going to go ahead and get started with our Fast Five here as we approach 2 o'clock on the West Coast. Monday was... Um, I think the ninth edition of Capital One's The Match. This year, this time, it featured world number two, Rory McIlroy, and world number seven, Max Soma, as well as LPGA current stars and Lexi Thompson and Rose Zhang. In that charity skins match, McIlroy won the most money and sealed it on a closest to the pin to determine that final skin, getting his ball to four feet from about 100 yards out. Yeah, uh, Reverend, I did see the result of this, and of course you see uh, McElroy uh, coming out on top here, but uh, what did you take away from this version of the match? Yeah, I think, you know, over the last, probably over the last year, we've gotten to see uh, Max Oma, you know, his personal side a little bit more, and just how much fun he is, and you really got to see that on Monday night, and with... Lexi Thompson and Rose Zhang, um, you know, you saw how much they could play. And, you know, we got to see that banter a little bit. You know, we got to see uh, Lexi Thompson back in December playing with uh, PGA Tour players. I think in the, I think it was the Grand Thornton Invitational, I think it was. It was a two-team. Um, and so, but you're just seeing how good um, these players are. Rose, Lexi Thompson... Uh, played her first LPGA event at, I think, 12. Rosang won her first event on the LPGA Tour uh, in her first start. And so you're seeing how good uh, golf is, both not just from players on the PGA Tour, but also the LPGA. Rosang also yeah. is a Stanford, so uh, Stanford, uh, she's a student at Stanford right now. So you get to see the Stanford Cal... Uh, <laughs> arguments between her and Max Homa throughout the night as well. I think that's a great point, Brevin. I mean, everything that you just mentioned, getting to know these players' personalities, um, just such a cool aspect of the match and uh, what they're able to do, you know, partnering uh, these people together, you know, these athletes. And um, I, I think that's important because you not only does it um, shed exposure on these athletes, but also, um the leagues in which they play in, like you said, respectively, PGA, LPGA. And so um, I think it's great to see. Yeah, it's kind of like how we were talking about a couple weeks ago when we had that Steph versus Sabrina three-point contest match, you know, where you get the best of uh, the men's side versus the best of the women's side competing against one another. You saw that um, on Monday between McElroy and Homa as well as Thompson and Zhang Mm -hmm. um, in this four-man matchup. Mm-hmm. All right, 
We go to point number two here. Oh, McElroy is also competing this week at the Cognizant Classic. I think he shot a four under 67, I believe. Um, also, uh, yeah, McElroy shot four under 67 today at PJ National. Um, so just an update on that. The leader is, leaders are Chad Ramey and SH Kim at seven under as that first round of play is nearing the end. But we go to point number two now where we got the CONCACAF Women's Gold Cup going on right now. Group stages are over. We got the quarterfinals getting set for this weekend. Um, so the group stage, um, you had in Group A, Mexico was the number one team uh, after their 2-0 victory over the United States. It was Mexico's, I believe, first win against the United States in like 14 years. Um, yep. Both Mexico and the U.S. advance. Um, you also had in Group B, Brazil and Colombia, they advance. Um, Brazil, uh, like Mexico, did not allow a goal. As they um, as Brazil went three and zero, three zero and zero in this uh group play, and in Group C you had Canada go three and zero, also did not give up a goal, and then Paraguay they went two zero and one, um to advance as well. So with that, we're now in the bracket play, and where we now we are now in the quarters where on. Both of these four matchups are going to take place on Saturday. So you've got Canada uh, facing Costa Rica. And then you've also got Brazil and Argentina. That game, the those both of those games are at BMO Stadium, home of LAFC. Yeah. Uh, in Los Angeles, right next to the Coliseum. And then you get, uh, on Sunday, March 3rd, Third, you're gonna get Mexico and Paraguay. That the that match kicks off at two, followed by the U.S. and Colombia. That match kicks off at five fifteen. Canada Costa Rica kicks off four o'clock on Saturday, followed by Brazil and Argentina at seven fifteen. So those quarterfinals at BMO Stadium, and then the semis and the finals are down at Snapdragon Stadium here in San Diego. Yeah, yeah great to see that be the venue for the final here. Um, really my big takeaway here so far from this tournament really uh, comes from the U.S. women's national team, that side of things. I mean, terrible loss to, to Mexico. There's no other way to put it. So uh, like you mentioned, Brevin, they are advancing. We'll see um, what comes of their next match, and uh, we're, we're going to see if they live up to the expectations um, that they usually do kind of perform to. But Brevin – I mean, we could be seeing a big changing of the guards here in terms of this team because this veteran leadership is not only, you know, aging currently on this team, but it's, it's either that or retired. I mean, we saw Megan Rapinoe retire not too long ago, and at her prime she was, you know, really propelling this U.S. women's national team. And so we have not only her, but other players move on and, and get old, and now it seems like a lot of these – uh, younger athletes uh, are, are kind of struggling to replicate that or not even in that, but just perform up to what uh, they're expected to. I mean, it's it's disappointing for sure um, in the perspective of the U.S. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's just part of that. I mean, you think about even from when this team, 
no, even part of last year when you saw, even during um, last year's World Cup team, we started seeing that transition, you know, where it wasn't necessarily Megan Rampino, it wasn't necessarily Alex Morgan and Lindsey Horan. You know, it's, you're starting to see more of, you know, like Crystal Dunn. You're starting to see, um, you know, Sophia Smith, you know, when healthy, you know, all these different players now that are starting to become those players in that prime. And now it's just a matter of them being able to um, deliver when they have to, just like some, some of these other players, you know, whether it was 2015, 2019 at those World Cups, you know, trying to get that Olympic gold, you know, and things like that, you know, because Olympics are, you know, we're going to talk about it in a sec, but the Olympics, they're right around the corner. Yeah, 100%. Great point. <laughs> All right, we go to number three here. And speaking of the Olympics, we've got some USA basketball rumors here where, according to Sham Sarania of The Athletic on Wednesday, so this was yesterday, his sources are telling him that Drew Holiday is expected to be one of the 12 players on that U.S. men's roster for the Olympics, which takes place in August. Yeah, I mean, kind of interesting... He's pretty much the first one confirmed, right? I mean, have we heard of anyone else that, that has had that confirmation yet? I mean, to, to my understanding, I don't think so. So this is a guy. I don't know if we've heard that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, so Drew Holiday, I mean, given that, I mean, I think he's a great selection here because he has that experience here with Team USA and he's shown that um, he can not only perform at a high level in the NBA, but against any international competition too. And I think what this is showing here is what, you know, this team really wants um, is kind of that defensive presence uh, on the perimeter, like from the beginning. And that's what Drew Holiday is going to give you. Obviously he could bring us with scoring ability as well, but I think that's what they're kind of locking in on is really what he brings defensively. And I think that's, what's going to be key for this team is uh, doing their job on both ends of the floor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the key thing too is, you know, even when you think about 2008, when you had LeBron, you had Kobe, you had D-Wade, Carmelo, that entire list, it wasn't just about what they did on the offensive end, but, but what they did defensively. I mean, whether it was the steals in the backcourt, the blocks at the board, uh, um, at the glass, you know, all those different things to create those turnovers and be able to get points off those turnovers that was really key you know among that redeem team and you know it's kind of like you know as much as um you know that's what they're trying to maintain um for this u.s uh team come august 100 percent, yeah that's that's huge and that's what steve kerr needs and obviously mm-hmm. those are uh, among his top wants as well hmm all right, we go to point number four here where we remain in the realm of basketball, but we go to the college game now where the debate of storming the court has returned after Duke's Kyle Filipkowski had to be helped off the floor on Saturday following the seventh-ranked Blue Devils lost at Wake Forest um, in that game, once that game was over. Yeah, I heard about this incident, or I, I saw something related to it on Twitter, I think, the day of, but I didn't really understand it, and I didn't see video of it, really, until actually a couple days ago, but, I mean, yeah, it's, um, 
difficult to watch almost when, when you see something like that happen. I mean, that's uh, your star player out there, and um, he's getting knocked around and um, caught at a terrible angle by a person who's running with speed towards the court. I mean, um, unfortunately, that, that stuff just happens sometimes. But, again, it raises questions about, you know, the controversy of court storms, um, what rules need to be in place maybe uh, in order to do it safely. Um, those are all factors. But yesterday I know that he did play um, in Duke's first game back. Um, so good to see him out there. And um, obviously this injury didn't affect him too much, at least it appears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's hard to stop too God, I don't know how many students are at that Wake Forest game, but when you think about it in a general concept, you know, when you have that type of a court storming, it's maybe a thousand at minimum of college kids wanting to run on the floor. I mean, at San Diego State, I think it's 2,500, you know, around that number. And so, um, I mean, obviously it's, you know, that uh, narrative of, playing against your rival or playing against a top team in the country and, uh, or, and you're trying to win that game. And then uh, being college kids, you're probably, you know, you probably pre-gamed a little bit. And then next thing you know, it's that actually happens. And then, you know, part of that too, it's, I think the security has to be how they can prepare best for these situations in order for it to go as safe as it can. 100%. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you think about when, and San Diego State has gotten better at this, and it's, and you've seen that, you know, when they do their court strummings, it's, they'll wait for the players to get off the floor, or wait for the opposing team to get off the floor, as well as during their handshakes, and then they're allowed to go onto the court. And so I think if that can maybe be adapted throughout the country, you know, I think it might be a better way for it to happen. Yeah, I think that's probably a good way to kind of change things, at least for now. And if that concept doesn't work, obviously we'll see how you can uh, change from there on out. But obviously something I think does need to change in that regard. And I think that would be a great idea. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. We go to the final point here on the fast five where the NFL uh, the NFL Player Association unveiled its 2024 player team record, report cards on Wednesday. It's the second year in a row that this has happened. Uh, 1,706 players across 32 teams, so approximately 53 players per team, ranked their club to not only help them make crucial decisions, but to improve standards across the league. And uh, getting the overall best grade... Of the 11 um, different um, categories was the Miami Dolphins. Um, uh, Those 11 categories included um, treatment of families, uh, food slash cafeteria, nutritionist slash dietitian, locker room, training room, training staff, weight room, strength coaches, also included uh, team travel, head coach, and owner. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I 
probably wouldn't expect the Dolphins to be number one on this list. I mean, just off the top of my head, but um, clearly they did enough to be deserving of that. They got great grades. Um, any word on who got the worst overall, Brevin? I know um, the Chiefs' ownership was was dead last. Yeah, and those Chiefs were uh, they received the worst grade. Um, the only A that the Chiefs received was for their head coach and Andy Reid. Everything mm-hmm. else was all um, they were thirty first out of thirty second. I can't remember who was thirty. Maybe who else? Maybe Arizona. Mm-hmm. Let me see. Chiefs were thirty first. Uh, no, not Arizona. But yeah, it was. Um, but yeah, all these grades deal, and you see that. Um, also, pretty much being at the cream of the crop with Miami was Minnesota. Uh, they were second, uh-huh. as well as part of this. Um, let's see if I can find who was last. Um, yeah, I mean, while you find that, Brevin, uh, to think that, you know, the Vikings as well um, are, are near the top of that list. That That's very interesting. I mean, um, you see how competitive they are, I think, pretty much year after year, or at least in recent history they have been. Um, and, I mean, that, I mean, a lot of factors go into this, into how a uh, football franchise really is run. But um, clearly uh, the players have voiced – um, what matters to them, and yeah, I mean Miami and Minnesota to be up there on top is, uh, I think that that's it says a big deal because I mean ultimately you really want to do attract um, some of the best players that you can, and uh, I'm sure this plays maybe a little bit of factor in how players look at the decisions, especially goes guys who are going to free agency this off season perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think too it's you know one of the obviously over the last couple of years one of the big names on that free agency board has been Kirk Cousins and you think about why he doesn't want to leave Minnesota this this report card shows what you know shows why he, um you know the only the worst score they got they got out of those eleven categories they got a B for training staff. And a B plus for food slash cafeteria. Hmm. But even then, all of their ranks out of the 32 teams, lowest ranking was ninth. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, the worst team, I did find it, um, among the NFLPA player rankings was uh, the Washington Commanders. Oh, yeah. I did see that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, they only got a one A, and that was for their strength coaches. <laughs> um, and some of these two, you have to read into it because it, um, some of these don't reflect their new head coaches. So, like, or like for example, the Raiders, it reflects Josh McDaniels and what he did, rather than yeah. Antonio Pierce as the interim head coach. So, um. Those are things that you have to make sure you read within those fine lines, and it's not just, 
oh, uh, Antonio Pierce didn't do X, for example. Yeah. Um, you know, things like that. Um, the Commanders, they had an F- minus for treatment of families, ranking 31st out of 32 teams. Mm-hmm. Also an F- minus in locker room and training room, while receiving Fs in training staff and team travel. Tough for them. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about treatment of families, for example, um, uh, the Commanders are one of 12 teams that do not provide a family room during games. They are one of seven teams that provide no daycare support for players as children on game day. Uh, the Commanders are one of four teams that do not offer either a family room or daycare. Uh, some wow. returning players report some. there are some improvements from last year, including a few new family events and a better, more private post-game fa- uh, family area. So you're, you're starting to see area. So you're starting to see the improvement, you know. But uh, many players want the team to offer a daycare and family room like most teams in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, regarding locker room, just 26 of the commander's players feel that they have enough room in their indivi- among their individual lockers. Hmm. So barely a quarter of that team. That's so me. that's maybe like 12 or 15 players. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um... Obviously, part of this is facilities based too. So when you think about, um, you know, for teams that have older stadiums, that might play a factor into this in terms of their grading for some of this. Um, I know the Chiefs were a part of that. Um, in terms of wanting new facility and and things like that. Um, so that falls within like ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, they had an F minus for ownership despite an A plus for head coach. Yeah. <laughs> so it tells you that the championship performances might be there on the field, but not ser- not necessarily off the field. Definitely puts things into perspective. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you think about locker room for the Chiefs, they got a grade of an F. Um um, 74% of players, this is the info on uh, the locker room situation for the Chiefs, 74% of players feel like the locker room is big enough, which is 24th overall of 32 teams. However, just 63% of players feel like they have an, uh, enough room in their individual locker. That's 30th overall. Um, the good news is that after many years, the team finally provided actual chairs for players to use at their lockers. The issue, however, is that players feel that the team promised them much more. The original plan was for the team to do a full renovation of the locker room after the 2022 season. <laughs> however, the team never followed through with that promise. I guess there wasn't that much time after winning the Super Bowl. What? <laughs> well, it's not happening this year either. What was that? It's like it's probably not happening this year either. I know. <laughs> it's got to take them not to reach the Super Bowl and give them an extra two plus weeks. <laughs> exactly. But yet, when you get teams that are preparing for the Super Bowl, well, yeah, they have two weeks to prepare as well to prepare the locker rooms and things like that. Yeah. Uh huh. 
and stadiums. But <laughs> those are just some of the rankings. Um, regarding the, let me find the Denver Broncos here. The Denver Broncos. Um, <laughs> the Denver Broncos. They were right in the middle of all 32 teams at 16th. Hmm. They got a D plus in treatment of families, which ranked 21st. They were, uh, they got a B plus in food and cafeterium, a B plus in nutritionist slash dietitian, uh, D in locker room, B minus in training room, B's in training staff and weight room, a C in strength coaches, which is, uh, 30th in the NFL. So near the bottom, they were, uh, B minus in team travel. As uh, a minus in head coach hmm. and ownership was an A. Makes sense. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. At least uh, head coach and, and owner. Mm-hmm. I think that makes sense. Uh, the lowest rating for a head coach were the Raiders at a D because of Josh McDaniels, basically. Yeah, no surprise there. Hmm. Uh, the owner, uh, so Miami and Minnesota each got A pluses. Then you had five teams with an A, another three teams with an A minus. Uh, lowest grade for uh, owners went to the Chiefs at an F minus, as well as Pittsburgh and Arizona, each getting Fs. Uh, let's see, the Raiders did get an A plus for weight room. Um, but yeah, those were the uh, player uh, player team report cards for 2024. Nice. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to move on now. We're going to come back to some basketball. We're going to talk some NBA here, where on Monday, the Los Angeles Clippers, they unveiled a new logo and team uniforms. This is part of when they make that switch to their new arena uh, beginning next season, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Um yeah, I mean, the new logo, I think, very interesting. Um, it's resemblant of their past. It has to do with, uh, you know, kind of uh, the roots where they came from in San Diego and um, related to uh, um, Maritime. And here, I think, on their um, new logo is what appears to be a ship. And um, I think that was pretty interesting, Brevin. I mean, to me, it kind of looked like a compass of sort, but I mean... Uh, I want to get your thoughts on that in a second, but I did um, like their their new uniforms that they unveiled. I think very sleek with the cursive writing um, on the front of the jerseys. Um, I do like the color scheme as well. Uh, red, uh, blue, uh, white as well. Um, you can also throw out some alternate uh, uniforms out there, I'm sure as well, um, with black. So um, it's going to be, I think, a really refreshed look for this team. Um, The logo, I think, will will need some getting used to, um, though, at the very least. What do you think, Brevin? Yeah, I think it's kind of like something we're getting used to. I mean, at first I was thinking it was more like, I understand the compass and it's a naval ship. Yeah. Um, but it first gave me like Seattle Kraken type vibes, you know, when you get a new logo and you're just yeah. all about adjusting to it and adapting to it. So I think that'd be part of it. Um, 
The only thing I it's try I think if and I could understand this if the Clippers then try and implement more of their military as a part of this within their games. I think to connect the team with um the military instead of trying to relay where they formerly were with the military and so yeah. and so you're not trying to connect old and new, you're trying to connect new and new at the same time. Yeah, hundred percent. Mm-hmm. Because, like, I mean, when you think about when you think about San Diego and you think about the Padres, they're probably one of the best in Major League Baseball when it comes to supporting the military. Yeah, and obviously, uh-huh. every single Sunday home game, they're wearing their military uh, uniforms and things like that. And so, um, you know, so adding that naval ship, I wonder if they'll. Um, recognize and have those military type games throughout the season, not necessarily every single week. Yeah, I mean that's a great way to connect with that community, hundred percent, Brevin, and um, also mm-hmm. you know, show the support from uh, for your hometown and the military. You know where you came from, because like you said, such a big yeah. Mm-hmm. Diego. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a positive though about it. At the same time. Yeah. Um, I mean, you think about <laughs> just imagine if Tony Gwynn actually, Tony Gwynn, who was actually drafted by the Clippers, the same day he was drafted by the Padres, actually chose basketball and how much, you know, that that changes uh, the Clippers franchise even now. I mean, when you yeah. think about it. Yep. 100%. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, continue on with some basketball here. Tuesday night was this past week of basketball has just been crazy, both at the college level and in the NBA with half court shots. You get buzzer beater shots, as we saw, like, for example, Jared Lucas, his buzzer beater to defeat Colorado State earlier in the week. Um, That was in uh, at Colorado State. But at the NBA level, you saw Max Struess. He had that game winning half court shot. To help his team get the win, that was crazy. Yeah, just ridiculous basketball, like you mentioned, Brevin. And Max Drews, I mean, just he being the ball, I mean, I had an interesting conversation with one of my coworkers. He asked me, do you think they practice that? I was like, yeah, I, I think they do. I mean, there's always a situation that you got to go over. Um, so Strews is probably the best one from distance there and he probably went to the right side for a reason because he knew he could keep it from there and have a chance uh probably where he's best from and he made it just unreal unreal ending Mm -hmm. i mean the best part about any half court shots to the buzzer is when that ball sinking through the air and everybody's waiting to find what happens with that shot and it just it's like completely silent or it's like one of those like oh no type moments. You're like, is this gonna go in? Because this determines a win or a loss for you know for a team. Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean that is really one of those moments in time where the world just freezes for a second and the anticipation is beyond anything else. And that's why <laughs> Sports is better than anything else because it's it has everything. It has every single emotion that you could ever ask for. And yeah, that that was an emotional ending to that game as well. Seeing the 
bench celebrate with yeah. Max Struess out on the floor. Um, amazing ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you think about it, it's kind of similar to, I mean, you think about Lamont Butler's game-winning shot during in the Final Four. I mean, you think about Hail Marys at the end of a game. You know, when you think about that ball going through the air, it's just as similar um, to that feeling. Um, that was a game, too, where the Cavs defeated the Mavericks, 121-119. Uh, Donovan Mitchell had 31 points, but Luka Doncic had 45 Nine rebounds and fourteen assists, so one re- one rebound away from a triple double for Luka Doncic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, another big performance this past week uh, in the NBA was last night when LeBron James put up nineteen points in the fourth quarter to help uh, pull off a twenty-one point comeback victory against the Clippers, who we just talked about. For a 116-112 victory, the Lakers outscored the Clippers 39-16 in the fourth quarter. Yeah, I mean, Brevin, just an unbelievable um, ending to this game here in the second half. Didn't see what happened until this morning, but yeah, it was a great ending. 39-16 was the uh, fourth quarter score. You saw the Lakers outscore the Clippers mm-hmm. 39 to 16 during that period. So just unbelievable play from LeBron James, putting the team on his back like always. And uh, that's a big win for the Lakers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. D'Angelo Russell had a couple of quick threes that, that he had a couple of clutch threes that he had to have quick releases on two throughout that fourth quarter as LeBron also had four assists. Over the final 12 minutes, as he played 37 minutes total, shot 13 of 21 from the floor, 7 of 12 from three-point range, had six rebounds, eight assists, and two blocks to go with 34 points. And then, uh, yeah, a game-high 34 points um, in that comeback win. Mm-hmm. And so with that... Uh, as you look at the standings here now, we'll probably talk more about it in... A sec, but as you look at the standings in the Western Conference now, with that, um, you get the Lakers. They are the number nine seed uh, in the Western Conference, so they are a half game up on the Golden State Warriors for the final spot, and the Lakers are two games back and two and a half back of Sacramento and Dallas, respectively, um, for that eight seven. So for that seven and eight spots um, in the standings. And then the Clippers, they are 37 and 20. They're four games back of first place, the Minnesota Timberwolves. They're two games back of the reigning champs, the Denver Nuggets. And they have a three and a half game lead on both Phoenix and New Orleans for the fifth and sixth spots. Yeah, this is uh crunch time here, Brevin. Um, we're getting down to the wire here. Uh, surely, uh, I mean, Really quickly here, um, we're going to see um, the season wrap up. And so for these teams right now, um, you got to finish the season strong, especially if you're in the position like the Lakers or the Warriors are. I think Brevin starting out by mentioning those teams was most important because these are the teams that we expect in the playoffs every season. Now they're going to be fighting in a, a play-in tournament game potentially to get to the playoffs. So they got to string some wins together. 
Um, it's very much possible to get to that five spot still right now as things stand, like you mentioned. Um, so the Western Conference, um, that's still up for grabs, really. Um, but uh, a couple teams at the top that we're going to mention here um, a little bit here on down the line um, that will break down. But heading to the Eastern Conference, though, Revan, I mean, the Celtics really standing out the season by far, 46 wins, 12 losses. Um, really competitive, uh, though. We've seen teams like the Magic kind of uh, surprise some people as well. The Knicks have done some good things, and uh, we're going to touch on that soon as well. But, um, yeah, Brevin, I mean, it's been a very good competitive season as things stand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you get – I mean, Boston's up ahead of the pack in the Eastern Conference, but then you get Cleveland and Milwaukee fighting for that second spot in the east yeah. and then playing one of those um playing teams um come to playoffs and then you get um you get five teams separated by two games you know you get the Knicks right there followed by the Heat Philly and Indiana all um all pretty much having the same record and then you get Orlando right there at 13 and a half. And remember, this was a team that we talked about earlier that had a nice start to the season uh, when we were talking about the end season tournament. Yeah, we're going to break down, um, you know, more on starts to seasons here coming up as well, Brevin. Uh, when, when you think about uh, how a team really takes step forward over the course of the season is big, but, you know, also how you, how you begin it, um, can have a huge impact on the outcome. And that's really happened to, to plenty of teams, really, in the NBA this season. Um, so we're going to touch on that more. But you're right, Revan, to see the Magic in that position, I think um, they've really impressed me this year. Um, the Eastern Conference is getting better, for sure. I think it's more competitive now than we've seen probably in the past two years. And I think that's really important. Mm-hmm especially when you see, you know, uh, competitive teams like the Bucks at Damian Lillard and, you know, the top teams make trades like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, when you look at the 10 seeds right now, Atlanta and Golden State, both teams have a four-game lead on that next team. Atlanta, they got a four-game lead on Brooklyn. And then the Warriors, they have a four-game lead on Utah in the standing. So key things to watch here as we enter – the final 20 or so games here left in the regular season. Um, uh, the Jazz, they're also a game ahead of Houston. Mm-hmm. All right. So with that, we're going to get into, we're going to welcome back our uh, fair or foul segment of three up, three down from this NBA season so far. And Kyle, how do you want to start things off? How do you want to start off your three up? Yeah, um, I'm going to start here with um, SGA, Shea Gilgis-Alexander. I mean, the Oklahoma City Thunder point guard has really put together um, an MVP caliber season. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, he's just been a player who has stood out and showed out so many different times over the course of the season. When you think about what he's been able to do over the course of of the past seven games, he's put up 30-plus in each of those seven games. The Oklahoma City Thunder right now 
second in the Western Conference. Brevin, I know you're going to touch on them here shortly, but he's been the reason that they are in that position. Um, he's just so good. He's just a good basketball player, Brevin, no doubt about it. Um, he's not going to put up triple-double numbers, but he'll lead you in scoring, and he's going to make plays for his teammates. Shea Gilgis Alexander second in points in the NBA this year at 31.2 per game. It also uh, leads the NBA in steals, averaging 2.1 steals per game. Um, I'm going to come back to the Thunder in a sec, but I'm going to go with my player here first. And I'm going to go Kawhi Leonard here, um, not just because he's a former ASIC, but He's got the opportunity to have the rare 50-40-90 season in terms of shooting 50% overall from the floor, shooting 40% from three, and shooting um, 90% from the free throw line. Um, right now, Kawhi Leonard is averaging 52% from the fl- uh, 52.9% from the floor, 44% from three, and 88.8% at the free throw line. So trying to uh quite learn trying to make some history here um to ours already strong career resume. You know, Brevin, I think this is huge for Kawhi to have a season like this because we've seen over the course of these past few years uh the load management controversy, um his injuries as well. I mean that's just really impacted him really, since his time started with the Clippers. And so for him to really put together the season, I think has been great. So great point there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to move on to my second point here, and I'm going to go with the first place Minnesota Timberwolves right now here in the Western Conference. I mean, there, there's not much more to say other than, you know, how well-constructed this team ultimately is. And I wasn't sure if that was ever going to work. Um, But really what they've been able to do has been so impressive yesterday coming off uh, their 42nd win of the season. They took down the Memphis Grizzlies. Um, This team has just found a way to win so many different times. Anthony Edwards is going to lead you in scoring like he does pretty much every single night. He's averaging uh, 26.6 points per game. That, that ranks 11th in the league right now. He's been huge for them. Carl Anthony Towns, we know what he provides. Um, 22.4 points a game, 8.5 points uh, rebounds per game, I should say. He's 26th in the league in both of those categories, respectively. So, I mean, when you pair those two scores with defensive uh, presences like Jaden McDaniels and Rudy Gobert, I believe Rudy Gobert right now, favorite for Defensive Player of the Year. I mean, it's going to be tough to stop this team in the postseason. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, for me, I'm going to go here now with the Thunder. And when you think about this Thunder team, you know, they're doing it with a lot of youth. You know, it's not like this is a veteran team. It's not like the 2022 Warriors when they had, you know, Steph and Clay and Draymond and all these veteran pieces, you know, this is a Thunder team that's getting it with a lot of youth, you know, Chet Holmgren's finally healthy and having a solid season, he's averaging 17 points and 
uh, 7.8 rebounds a game. You get Shea Gilgis Alexander, who Kyle just mentioned, 31 is 31 and six assists per game with two steals. Um, you know, and just it all continues to go from there. Jalen Williams, and you get Josh Giddy um, to continue to add to that top four punch there um, on the court. Absolutely. All right, for my final point for my 3F, I'm going to go with the Boston Celtics here. And Brevin, like we talked about, first in the East, and uh, this is a very well-constructed team. Uh, We mentioned how a couple teams have made some really important trades um, in the Eastern Conference, Um, the Celtics being one of those, acquiring Drew Holiday. Um, He's been a big reason for this team's success this season. You pair him with... Uh, a guy who's really grown, like Derek White, I think, um, at your two spot. I mean, good things are going to happen, and they already have happened. Um, this team just stacked with talent. Um, they've made some really good moves um, over the course of these past few seasons. Um, I think it's really important to have a guy like Al Horford coming off the bench for this team, um, just because he still provides so much. Um, and yeah, Brevin, I think this is a team to beat right now. They have really performed, but it's going to come down to the playoffs. Can they come through there? Yeah, I think that's the big question. I mean, I think they, the Celtics, they played, I can't remember who it was. Um, was it Indiana? Oh no. When they played at Milwaukee and they lost by 33, yeah. You wouldn't be able to recognize that that was the championship team um, at that point. And so you're hoping that that's a team that can turn things around and, you know, be able to get those uh, victories against that qu- those quality of opponents. Huh. Um, you know, this is a Celtics theme team. They still got the Bucks one more time in, uh, um, in Milwaukee. They've got... Sacramento, they've got OKC. Um, you know, they've got um, Milwaukee a second time. You get Phoenix in that mix. Um, Denver's in that mix as well. Uh, the Warriors. Um, and you get the Mavericks at the same time. So there's definitely a lot of teams left on their schedule that have a lot of playoff caliber. All right, my final point here, making a quick change here. I did have the Celtics, but I'm going to go with LeBron James here. And for him to be doing, like we just talked about, for him to be doing at his age, you know, the consistency is just unexplainable. I mean, when you think about um, being 39 years old, he's on the cusp of of approaching, becoming the first 40,000 points scored in NBA history. I think he's 70 points away. I think that no, what that number is, you know, it's just unfathomable when you think about how solid LeBron James has been playing, not just this year, but his entire career, but to do it as well as he is at the, um, during his career, 960, 40 points away from 40,000 career points. It's, Something that, you know, it's it's obviously once in a generation. It's probably once in multiple generations 
Um, you know, he's playing, I mean, how many 39-year-olds do you see starting 52 games so far in a seat? You know, we're about 60 games in. You know, is it, he's making over 50% of his field goals. I've done that for most of his career. 40% from three, which is a uh, 8% jump from last year. Um, 73% at the free throw line. Um, it's just, uh, incredible to see, to see the play that we're seeing from LeBron James, you know, even at this age, as we keep saying that you're in and you're out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Now let's go to our three down here and Kyle, where do you want to start? Yeah, for my first point here, I am going to go with Kyle Kuzma. And uh, so far here in um, 2024, it has not gone well for Kuzma, who um, obviously we all know starting point guard here for the Washington Wizards. They are tied for last right now in the Eastern Conference standings. Um, While he has had a couple of... uh, Decent games recently, his uh, plus-minus margin um, has been uh, the worst in the league um, since the start of the year. So um, uh, across the stretch, uh, hasn't been as productive uh, as um, he has wanted here. And uh, the Wizards, unfortunately, um, not in one of the best spots as well. Um they're going to need guys like him to continue to, you know, try to improve his field goal percentage over time um, and be, you know, that guy who can, um, you can rely on really. Yeah. It has not gone well for Kyle Kuzma and the Wizards. I'm going to stick with the Wizards here um, for this next point of the three down. And that is, that is Kyle Kuzma's teammate, in Jordan Poole, and Jordan Poole has definitely put on the opportunity to get an MVP, but not from uh for his strong performances, but his bad performance, his bad performances and his bad plays in terms of the Shaq to the Fool MVP. And, I mean, it feels like it's like every single week you're seeing one Jordan Poole week make Shaq to make Shaquille O'Neal's lowlights of the week. I mean, this this time it was a uh, mistakenly putting the ball in play for his team for a turnover against the Nuggets, and it's just like one play after another. It's um, just signs of a team that's only won nine games so far this year. And yeah. I mean, it's tough to see. I mean, and even when you look back at that trade that um, Jordan pulled a trade for Chris Paul. I mean, you're right now somehow saying you know, when you trade an older guy for a younger team for a younger player on a team that is as their primary stars are older players, you would think, all right, that older team is not going to win. Yeah, but in this situation, well, the older team's actually winning here. Um, you know, and um, it's been tough to see Jordan Poole have that type of play. I mean, obviously, you want a player do as well as he can, but I mean, it's not what you want to see from someone who just won a ring two years ago. Right. hundred percent. All right, Kyle, where do you want to go next here? I'm on your three down. 
Yeah, next I'm going to go with the Lakers and the Warriors, um, particularly the rough start to the season because they're really in the position they're in right now in the 9-10 and 10 spot because of um, just really what they weren't able to do for um, the beginning portion of the year. I mean, we saw both of these teams essentially uh, almost dead last near the bottom of the standings in the early stages of the season. We didn't see the Warriors really turn a corner until we saw more production from guys like Jonathan Kaminga, who stepped up, uh, moving Clay Thompson to the bench as well. He, he Him moving on from his role, we're going to get to that in a second as well. But, I mean, um, there's so many different factors have gone into why the Lakers and Warriors are in the position that they're in. Um, but I think we can mostly attribute that to just the beginning portion of the season because – I mean, they've performed pretty well ever since, for the most part. Just got to get out of the hole that they're in, being in the bottom portion of the top 10 in the West. <laughs> but this is a team that didn't play well. Basically, they had that five-game winning streak and from about until Christmas, basically. And then struggled there. This team, they lost six in a row one point early. Part of that was in-season tournament. And um, where they were, they lost, I think it was eight of nine at one point. Part of this, too, for the Warriors, they haven't been able to win those close games. We saw that against teams like Sacramento, that big 145-144 game against the Lakers. Um, I mean, but now you've just seen this team start to turn it around. They've won... 11, they won 11 of the last 14 games uh, since that big Laker two-overtime loss. And, um, you know, they're right back into being in playing cont- um, contention right now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the Lakers... All right. Yeah, d- despite, mm-hmm. the you know, the in-season tournament early on, just being on the road, um, man, struggled a lot and... Uh, couldn't piece it together in games that weren't the in-season tournament for some reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. And speaking of the Warriors, I'm going to go here with my next point in Clay Thompson. And when you started for your entire career, when healthy, you've gotten used to that role. But when you're not producing as much, you know that that's like on the team. And that's kind of where I have Clay Thompson here. It's nothing about – it's just his – what he's been – able to do 17 points uh three and a half rebounds it's right on track of where he is but it's nothing like where he was both the past two years since getting back with the in- with the injury yeah. as well as where he was before the injury where he was averaging 20 21 22 points per game and so you're starting to see that drop off um from clay thompson the minutes right now versus minutes at 30 you know, but most of that was from starting. And so now you're going to start to see that break, I believe now for Clay Thompson. Um, You know, even though he's, I think being part of that second unit, um, it doesn't give, it gives him, you know, less pressure than being um, among the starters. Uh, And so as much as the minutes are still there, um, you know, 24, 28, 27, 21, you're still seeing that opportunity for him to have success, you know, and technically a lesser role, and you're starting to see, you know, and it's, 
there's credibility to that as well in the type of player that Klee Thompson brings to this team. And so it's not necessarily of a down compared to Jordan Poole, but it's a down in terms of just the production. And part of that comes with age. It comes with injuries, as we've seen, you know, Clay Thompson not playing, you know, for two straight years with Achilles followed by the ACL. Yeah. Just detrimental injuries there. And you saw how that affected him. But now I think it just comes down to, you know, accepting what he can provide. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm going to move on to my third point here for my three down. I'm going to go with Ben Simmons here. I mean, just another year in which he struggled. I mean, since coming into the league, we've seen his production completely drop off. Um, Similar numbers to last season this year on the Nets. Six points a game, pretty much eight rebounds a game as well. Um, A little bit closer to six assists. Uh, this season as well, I would say. So, I mean, it's just not what you would expect from a guy like Ben Simmons. I mean, he's a three-time All-Star playing in his sixth NBA season. This year only played in 15 games, though, and that's because he's been dealing with injury. And injury has just completely taken over his career in recent seasons. That's a good reason for, you know, part of his lack of production, obviously. Um and even tonight, Brevin, uh, reports coming out 10 minutes ago that he is a late addition to the Nets injury report because of uh, left leg soreness. So uh, the injury troubles continue here, and um, we just haven't seen him return to the form that we did when he was in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when you think about, too, for a player like Ben Simmons and where this Brooklyn team's at, you know, they're right there on that 11 line, just four games back of Atlanta, as you mentioned. And, you know, we know how much of an impact he can be um, to a team, as you mentioned, his accolades. And so, you know, obviously health is a big part of it in terms of, you know, being able to produce. And so you're hoping that these final 20 games, he can find a way to get better. I mean, this guy was an all NBA player, um, just three, four years ago. And so, you know, you're hoping that he's able to turn things around, um, hopefully over, um, those final 20 games. All right. Um, final one for me. And you could even put as much as Clay Thompson was controversial in terms of putting him in in this three down. I think the refs have been just as controversial as well in a different aspect. I mean, when you think about, I mean, we're seeing at least once a week now, we're getting to the point where we're seeing NBA coaches, for the most part, maybe some players, have complaints about the the refereeing and the officiating that takes place in the NBA. We saw it this past week. With uh, Detroit, they were taking on, I think it was the Knicks, and there was a foul that was missed, and um, the uh, Pistons head coach, uh, Monty Williams, just said that it's got to get better, and when you saw the report after the game, they had mentioned that there was a foul that was missed, and so it's, you know, understanding late in games that these refs got to... You know, just be better. You know, it's just like the NFL player report card. It's it's that positive improvement that 
anyone can do at their job. And the refs are no question to that. 100%. I mean, the refs have been in question so many times. I think that Monty Williams, um, you know, soundbite that you're referring to is kind of the peak of that as well. I mean, but we've seen so many players even go out and question, you know, officiating over the course of the season too. So hopefully we see things improve. And I mean, we, we pretty much say that at every level and every sport, Revan, but I mean, in some instances, like in, in the NBA, especially like the, the ref got to do better, like just straight up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk some baseball. We're officially in the heart of spring training baseball. We got games going on today. Teams, we got uh, we got NFL, or we got a major league and top prospects going up against one another. We got um, stars making their first appearances in spring training. So we're going to talk about all that and more baseball in the second half of our show. We got trivia as well, so... Stay tuned for the second half of Down the Line. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to Down the Line. This is episode number 142, recording the show on Leap Day. This is Thursday, February 29th, 2024. Kyle Betts here, as always, joined alongside Rev and Honda in our first half here of our show. We broke down the Fast Five. We got into uh, the match that we had featuring Rory McIlroy, Max Homa, as well as Lexi Thompson and Rose. Also got into our Tonka Calf Women's Gold Cup update. Also got into the latest in uh, basketball, including the uh, court storm controversy involving Duke and Wake Forest. The NFLPA player team report cards were also a big topic in our Fast Five as well. We also broke down our NBA and our 3 up 3 down segment featuring our uh, thoughts on the NBA season thus far. Now we're getting to our second half of the show, but first we're going to start with some breaking news as it comes from the sphere of college basketball as well here. Caitlin Clark, the Iowa women's basketball guard, is foregoing her final year of eligibility, and she is going to enter the WNBA draft. The number one overall pick belongs to the Indiana Fever, so it appears they are going to be acquiring... Caitlin Clark, one of the um, most decorated players in the history of the NCAA. Yeah, and the NBA Fever, within the last hour, did a tweet reminding everyone that they have uh, the number one pick, and there are 46 days until the 2024 WNBA draft. So... Yeah, they were ready for that announcement to happen. Remember, in case you're wondering, uh, where the Fever play at Gamebridge Fieldhouse, it is just 360 miles away from the University of Iowa. So, uh, just when you give a general concept of how far 
most likely Caitlin Clark is going to be playing next season it is just 350 miles away from the University of Iowa. Iowa. Yeah, not bad at all. She will definitely be making some visits back to her uh, old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's also 18 points away from breaking the all-time NCAA Division One screen record, both men's or women's, uh, going after Pete Maravich's record um, that has stood for um, uh, multiple decades, four or five decades. Wow. Yep. It's going to be a historic moment when she does that. Speaking of, Revan, when is she expected to do that? When do they play next? Um, the University of Iowa, the Hawkeyes, I think they play tomorrow. They play, or no, they play Saturday, I believe. Let me pull up that schedule for Iowa. Because mm. I know they're taking on Ohio State. So that should be, oh, that game, those are games are on Sunday. Oh, okay. Iowa hosting number two. Ohio State, 10 o'clock tip-off on Fox. Wow. At Carver Hawkeye Arena. Packed house. Mm Mm-hmm. Packed house, I believe, one of the most expensive tickets in women's college hoops history as well. That's great. Um... Let's see, I think, what do you got here? On a vivid seats, those tickets are going for through as low as $363. Wow. <laughs> Just shows the demand for yeah. cable. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you look at the other six Big Ten games, tickets are going for as low as $2. So a $361 difference between Ohio State, Iowa, the two of the top six teams in the entire country, and uh, Michigan and Wisconsin. (laughs) Huge difference for sure, yeah. I mean, you also have... mm -hmm. Also have number 14, Indiana. They're hosting Maryland. Um, and that's going for as low as $14. So, yeah, like you mentioned, Kyle, just seeing the demand for Caitlin Clark, um, on her historic season. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she is just beyond pretty much anything we've seen ever before here in college basketball. So to see her, uh, inch closer to that record has been great and, um, I'm honestly a little bit surprised that she's not staying uh, at Iowa here for her um, senior season uh, or what would have been her final year of eligibility. But um, it's going to be exciting to see her in the WNBA, and uh, she's going to write her own story there as well. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get into some MLB here, and we're going to break down the latest trades, transactions, and rumors. And Brevin, we're going to kick off um, the latest of what's happened this week involving the Los Angeles Dodgers. Because on Monday, which was the 26th of February, 
they made a couple of moves and I would say pretty substantial, at least one of them, um, because they get a fan favorite back in town. Uh, so they traded um, their outfielder, Manuel Margot, to the Minnesota Twins. Uh, once again, this happened on Monday. That same day, it was also announced that the Dodgers are signing utility man Kike Hernandez. And that was to a one-year deal, I believe, reported at $4 million. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that Manny Margot trade, the uh, um, the they also received Rain on uh, uh, in the deal. He's twenty year old um, prospect who is rated as the Dodgers' number twenty three prospect according to MLB Pipeline, and uh, the Twins um. Gave up infield prospect Noah Miller, who was the 36th overall pick in the 2021 MLB draft, uh, and is uh, Minnesota's number 23 prospect according to MLB Pipeline. Noah Miller is also the younger brother of Brewers utility man Owen Miller. Um, so remember, Manny Margot has got a two-year, $19 million deal that expires at the end of the season, but there is a team option for 2025 worth $12 million. Dollars, mm-hmm. and when you think about Manny Margot, he'll he can play all three positions, you know, and you know, especially in center field, when you've got an injury plague Byron Buxton, he can easily fulfill that center field role um, as a backup and start if needed. Yeah, nice acquisition for them. Um, I think the Dodgers also getting Kike Hernandez back. Um, is mm-hmm. a big deal for them as well. Hmm. All right, let's move on now and let's get into our divisional preview of the week here. And this week we're going to break down the National League Central Division and uh, several teams here could make things interesting, but we're going to start with um, one of them that just made a recent huge move um, that I think will uh, potentially set them apart from the rest, um, potentially, that being uh, the Chicago Cubs. And a big move this weekend for them, like I mentioned, they've resigned outfielder Cody Bellinger on a three-year, $80 million deal. Once again, that happened this past weekend. Saturday night at 11.37 p.m. here on the West Coast. So late night there uh, in Chicago where they got this done. Um, and as part of this deal, Brevin, opt-outs are after the first two years. That's happening in 2025 and 2026. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think now you're getting to that point where you're starting to see players settle. Obviously, this is... Um, because of Scott Boris, Bellinger's agent, who's also Blake Snell's agent, uh, in terms of settling. So you get a three-year, $80 million deal, can still be a free agent next season. Um, and so this is just one of the things that you uh, um, are now expecting um, as players, top players on the market who haven't signed or going through now. And you're going to eventually see that you know, once Blake Snell and eventually Jordan Montgomery um, fall off the board. But when you think about the Cubs here, 
know, in 2020 and 2024, remember, they got Craig Council as their um, new manager. And, um, you know, I think it was primarily, you know, it's still a, you know, this team's still transitioning from that and how they're going to get to trying to win another World Series since they did in 2016. I mean, last year they um, they said goodbye to uh, Wilson Contreras, who's now with St. Louis, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. I mean, you think about you're going to have Jan Gomes as your starting catcher, it looks like, with Jorge Alfaro and Miguel Amaya. Um Back there, I'm looking at fan graphs and their depth charts right now. Jorge um, Alfaro. It'd be interesting to see. What was that? Jorge Alfaro, the Padres legend. Yes, uh huh. Who had five walk offs himself. Uh huh. Um, let's see. I mean, it'd be interesting where Cody Bellinger plays. You know, whether it's out, whether it's center field, if it's first base, you have Garrett Cooper for uh, who signed a minor league deal. Um, Patrick Wisdom, if he's healthy, you know, you get a good, um, double play duo at second base and third stop. You know, Dansby Swanson is second season. How about is can he make those adjustments from last year playing shortstop at Wrigley Field? You get Nico Horner as, as well, um, at second base, you know, a gold glove candidate. Third base will be interesting. You know, there's definitely options for that position between Patrick Wisdom if he's healthy, Nick Madrigal um, as well. Uh, outfield, Ian Happ, that looks pretty solidified there. You got Christopher Morell as a fourth outfielder with Mike Talkman. David Peralta's there too. Um, well, it looks like I would assume Cody Bellinger plays center field. Yeah. Um, you know, you do have Pico Armstrong. You know, from the farm system, and then right field, it's say Suzuki from Japan, and so in his second season. So I think it's all about how these first year coast players adjust to, um, you know, and how well they can take that next step in a Cubs uniform. Some are higher than others, obviously. And then when you think about even that rotation, you know, Justin Steele was solid last year. Then you get Jamison Tyone. You still have Kyle Hendricks from that World Series team. The new piece to this year is Shota Imanaga. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to see where he slots in, you know, whether it's, you know, three or if it's four. But Craig Council, he'll know where to for sure put these players in a position to have success. You get, um, um, and then you think about that uh, relief core, you get Hector Nares from Houston. Uh, Adbert Azale probably be the closer. You get, um, Drew Smiley, make sure you see where Drew Smiley pitches. Remember, he was, remember, he had that no hitter for like eight innings last year before it, um, went away on a, on a squibber that was, uh, an indecisive call between him and his catcher. And so it'd be interesting to see how those, um, pieces come together for the Cubs. It's definitely a division that's, will be wide open in 2024. Yeah. This is their opportunity. I think you're 100% right. And what they've been able to do, I mean, building up to this moment, even then has been important. I think you mentioned um, those second-year Cubs here last season made such a difference um, putting together 80-plus wins. Mm -hmm. Um, Another team in the NL Central, a second team, 
you got the Milwaukee Brewers. Pat Murphy is now the head coach. He's been the bench coach for the last few seasons. And I think it's, you know, it's kind of like the Cubs, you know, in a different way where you're seeing some rookies now make their second years, you know, like a, a Bryce Terang, you know, um, you know, names like that on top of, you know, how how much playing time is Jackson Trio going to get? Is he going to make his opening? How soon does Jackson Trio make his opening debut um, throughout the season? You know, South Relay, Joey Weimer, young guys there. Remember, this is a team that they're catching court. It's Gary Sanchez and William Contreras, you know, a good one-two punch there. Also add in Christian Yelich, you know, it's, He's obviously not going to produce the 2018 numbers when he was the MVP, but you know how much more consistency are you going to get and the, the level of expectation for him? But I think it's, I think this year it's more dependent on the pitching staff in addition to the newcomer yeah. of Reese Hoskins. You know, this is a year where, I mean, you think about just a couple of years ago it was Corbin Burns, it was Brandon Woodruff, and there was one other at the forefront of that rotation for a one, two, three. Now you've just got Freddie Peralta, you got Wade Miley, Jacob Junish, you get Colin Ray, um you know, DL Hall who they got back from that um Carbon Burns trade. Um you know, and you think about that, I think that bullpen's gonna be relied on a lot more as a result of that. You know, Devin Williams at the forefront of that. Um you get Trevor Magill, Hobie Miller, um Aaron Ashby's her who can make some starts, you know, so there's opportunity um, and definitely spots open for this Brewers team. Yeah. I mean, for the Brewers, I think it comes down to Corbin Burns, Bakersfield legend. I mean, he's not a part of this. Mm -hmm. How odd is that? I mean, we've seen him, what a part of that for several plus years now. Um, And now to see him in new territory, you you see guys like D.L. Hall step in as a part of this rotation. I mean, that's what's going to be relied upon, I think, Brevin. Um, not only the rotation, but I think just the entire pitching staff, including that bullpen. Um, some new faces in there. Expectations remain high because, like you said, this division is wide open. Um, so what's going to be interesting is seeing how all these guys gel um, together, and especially the guys who are just coming in for this first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the Pirates, I kind of think about them the same way as the Reds, where they've got these young pieces and they're trying to be a team that can take that next step. I mean, when you think about um, when you think about um, the Pirates, you know, it's you get O'Neill Cruz. If he can stay healthy for an entire season, entire season, what can he do? I mean, you think about Key Brian Hayes, you know, you get the you have your leadership with Andrew McCutcheon, um, who's trying to hit 300 homers. Let's see how early he gets that in 2024. And when you think about the Reds, you know they've got young pieces of their own. You know Spencer Steer, Jonathan India, their former Rookie of the Year, Ellie like Cruz, Nick Senzel, who they drafted. You know former first round pick. You know T.J. Friedel, Will Benson. You know this is still going to be a young team. Matt McClain is in that mix. You know, and that's just their hitters. I mean. When you think about their pitching, which is uh, still young as well, I mean, they're projected to have a five-man rotation where only one of them is above 29, and that's Luke Weaver. I mean, because you got Graham Ashcraft, 
Brandon Williamson, most likely. Hunter Green is probably the forefront of that. And then you got Andrew Abbott, you know, who pitched well yeah. last year. And then you got, obviously, when you think about the pieces that they got in, you know, like to their bullpen and Emilio Pagan, Nick Martinez, as he starts um, in 2024, those are the things that will be playing out um, for David Bell here uh, this season. Yeah, 100%. I think this is an interesting Pirates team, Revan, because we saw mm-hmm. how they, you know, at, at times took a step forward last season. They're looking to build upon that. Mitch Keller leading this rotation. We we talked about yeah. that mm-hmm. last week. Um, he's a big part of that success leading the way. A um, couple other guys behind him um, that are looking to prove themselves as well. But um, for the most part here, Brevin, this is sort of a new look Pirates team. I mean, a few familiar faces. You mentioned some names in there earlier, uh, some veterans who have been part of uh, trying to build this roster. But, I mean, for the most part, Brevin, um, it, it's not the same Pirates look where they just kind of keep the same guys over and over again. And now they're just stacking talent. And that's what you want to see from this organization who has uh, struggled just, it it seems, for so long. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you think about, um, you know, just three years ago, the first overall pick in that 2021 draft in Henry Davis, he made his major league debut last year. And so you're looking at what he can do to take that next step. You know, you've got Jack Sawinski and Brian Reynolds, who's, been at the forefront of trade conversation. You know, you've got, um, you know, just some of those younger guys, you know, on top of Keith Ryan Hayes and O'Neill Cruz on that left side of the infield. 100%. And what about the Cincinnati Reds as we continue here breaking down the National League Central? Uh, Brevin, this Reds team, I, I think, you know, kind of similarly to – the Pirates, they they have a team full of um, younger guys and veterans. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how they all gel together here. Um, but um, th- this Reds team, we saw them improve last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when it comes to the Reds, I think it's... Obviously, they got one of the smallest ballparks um, in the country. And so I think it's a matter of how well they can use that to their advantage. I mean, they call it a band box for the reason. I mean, this is a team, you know, like the um like the Orioles that had that improvement from the year before. I mean, this is a Reds team in twenty twenty two. They went sixty two and a hundred. This past year they went eighty two and eighty. Uh finished third in the division. You know, they were because of how um tight that division was you know they were just 10 games back of first place and so you think about just you know when you play 162 games and you think about just 10 games being a part of that and how much one inning each of those 10 games go that's a difference of being a playoff team and so um i think just like the reds and with the pirates it's you know like we talked about how this team can especially the younger guys on that team the first year players on these teams you know, and there's still some first-year players on these teams, but how well they can adapt and take that next step uh, in 2024. 100%. Plenty of talent on that Reds team for them to make things interesting, I think, in the NL Central. And I think it's safe to say that about the St. Louis Cardinals, too. Um, guys, full 
of talent on this roster. And Brevin last year just did not come to fruition. We'll touch on that um, up here in just a second. But first, let's start with some news coming out of the Cardinals camp. Um, they added to the veteran leadership core, signing infielder Brandon Crawford on Monday. So you see the Cardinals go out and they uh, bring a guy who could potentially be their DH. He can fill it in the infield. Um I think it's a solid pickup. What do you think, Brevin? Yeah, I think it's just, when you think about that shortstop position and how I think critical it is in, our, in today's game, I mean, you think about some of the good shortstops in in this game, both that are playing shortstop right now or were former shortstops, you know, especially when you look at the Padres, for example. But, I mean, you think about the experience that Brandon Crawford belongs, that brings to this Cardinals team, it'll definitely give Mason win and those rookies um that mentorship and that experience um playing that position yeah that's huge for sure um good pickup there um a couple other additions that they made this offseason include Sonny Gray Lance Lynn and Kyle Gibson so you see um Lance Lynn uh returning to St. Louis here but what does it mean, Brevin, for the Cardinals to come back and, and add to their pitching rotation and really just build that staff? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to remember all three of these moves were before the winter meeting. So um, these were early signings by each of these uh, for each of these three players. You know, and Sonny Gray was lights out last year in Minnesota. Has the opportunity to do that again here in a pitcher's ballpark, you know, um, and then you add in a veteran in Lance Lynn, despite giving up the long ball last year, you know, he's shown that he can, you know, go 175, 180 innings, you know, I mean, and you add in Kyle Gibson as well, can do the same thing, you know, it's innings eaters, you know, and doesn't have to give that taxation on the bullpen, you know, add in Miles Michaelis as well, and you got four pitchers that can throw a good 170, 180 innings plus, you know, in 2024. But I think when it all comes down to, also got to add in the addition of Matt Carpenter and the experience there. But, I mean, when it comes to the offense, it's I think it's that bounce-back type years from Nolan Arenado and from Paul Goldschmidt. Obviously, it's kind of hard when, you know, you're the MVP from two years ago and you kind of have that type of a season last year where you didn't go as well as you wanted to, but that's just it just goes through the challenges of how tough a major league season really is. Yeah. And then, mm -hmm. yeah. And you think about Arenado, he was dealing with injury um, all season long. And that's why you, we talked about last during the winter of how, you know, how weird it was not seeing Nolan Arenado's name next to that gold glove Mm -hmm. um, and how it went to key Brian Hayes. 100%. 100%. Yeah, that was not a familiar sight. And I think that's key too, Brevin, just seeing those guys really come out and perform like they're expected to because that's what this team needs in order to be successful. We did not see that consistently mm-hmm. last year, and um, that showed in the overall team performance. Mm-hmm. You know, all five of these teams, they have an opportunity to win the division. And it's going to be when we get to picking each of our division winners, this NL Central will be up there. It's probably one of the toughest because of 
how many teams have the opportunity to win this division. You know, you got all five teams. You know, I don't really know how many other of the six divisions. I don't know how many of all those other divisions where we could say that that you can make a case for all five of those teams to win the division. Yeah. Great point. All right, we're going to move on to trivia here. And, Brevin, you are on the block today. And today we are going to do the all-too-familiar... Have you done the Immaculate Grid yet? I did not yet. I had a hunch. All right, we're going to do it. All right, let's see what we've got today. (laughs) We're running it back. Our, Our favorite game here on Down the Line. Yes. The Immaculate Grid. Immaculate Grid today for Leap Day, an extra day here this year. So going from um, le- on, from on the left side, going from top to bottom, we have played in the major Negro Leagues. We have the Pittsburgh Pirates, and then we have an All-Star. Then okay. on the top, going from left to right, we have the Dodgers, we have the Guardians, and then we have a player born outside the U.S., 50 states, and D.C. Tim? Very uh, specific. Mm-hmm. Remember the uh, Negro Leagues, it's part of a uh, final day of um, Black Heritage Month, so that's um, why so you've been seeing all month long the Negro Leagues aspect um, come and play here. Um, I'm just going to go with the Dodgers, Negro Leagues. I think that's the, uh, the favorite there. Yep. Uh, there's only pretty much a name that stands out. I'll go Jackie Robinson here. Jackie Robinson, 68%. Come. Um, I'll just work my way down here. Dodger and a pirate. I'll go Russell Martin. Ooh. Russell Martin, 15%. Yeah. It's a good one. Um, this Dodger All-Star, who do I want to go with? There's some options here. Um, Dodger All-Star? I'll go Oral Hershiser. Dodger All-Star, Oral Hershiser. Two percent. Two percent. Wow. Some say he should be a Hall of Famer. All right. Uh, Cleveland, Pittsburgh. I'll knock that out of the way. Uh, Carlos Santana. That's a good one. Carlos Santana. Twenty-nine percent. Yeah. Another option I could have went with, as I just thought about it, was Austin Hedges. Um, Ooh. Uh. Cleveland All-Star. Um, I'll go Shane Bieber. That's a good one. Shane Bieber. 4%. Yeah, come. I know the number one answer for Pittsburgh-born outside of the U.S. It's Roberto Clemente, but I'm seeing if there's... I'm thinking of any others. Um, yeah. I'm going to think about if there's any others because I got 68% and 29%. Um, all right. Um, let's see. All-star born outside the United States in D.C. 
I'm going to go Fernando Tatis Jr. Fernando Tatis Jr. 0.6%. Six tenths of a percent? Okay. Um. Mm. All right. Um, pirates born outside the U.S. in 50 states. Oh, here we go. Uh, G-Man Choi. Oh, that's a good one. G-Man Choi. 3%. Yeah, okay. All right, now some Negro Leagues. Oh, this is going to be difficult here. Um, hmm. Negro Leagues born outside the U.S. in 50 states. Um, who, who do I want to go here? Um, I don't remember if Cool Papa Bell was born outside the U.S. the 50 states. Ooh. I'll go try... Negro leagues fit outside the fifty states here. We're gonna go cool Papa Bell. Who? Uh cool C O O L. Cool Papa yeah. Bell. Yep. Oh, he wasn't born outside the fifty states. No, Sorry. it was not cool Papa Bell. For- no. He played in the <laughs> 1922 yeah. to 1946. Yes. He was a Negro Leagues player. Okay. Um. Wow. Hmm. All right. One more guess here. I think these two final ones are going to be a little difficult here. Any... Mm. One last one. Or outside the U.S. and 50 states, I need a Cleveland player to play in the Negro Leagues. Um, I'm drawing a blank right now. The only one I can I think of who played in that generation, but I don't think he would have played with the Negro Leagues. I'm thinking Trish Speaker, but I know he didn't play... I don't think he played in the Negro Leagues because he was at Cleveland. Hmm. Um, you know what? We'll just try that for Cleveland. I I doubt it's right though. Tris Speaker. Yeah, that's not right. Tris Speaker is not right, but no. Revan did get seven out of nine. That's pretty good. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was tough. That was tough. All right. Uh, that was really difficult. Let's take a look at uh, the possible answers here. Um, for the major Negro Leagues players who also played for the uh, Cle- for Cleveland. Uh, Satchel Page is a name I recognize. Could I have said Larry Doby or Minnie Minoso? Oh, yeah. Larry Doby, yeah. Okay, let's take a look at Negro Leagues players born outside of the U.S. Four Hall of Famers. Yeah, Mini Minoso. Mini Minoso. Hmm. 
So there you go, your top answers. Mm -hmm. Jackie Robinson, obviously. Larry Joey for uh, Negro League players for Cleveland. Mini Minioso. Uh, for Dodgers and Pirates player, you had Rich Hill, 24%. Yeah. Carlos Santana for Cleveland and uh, Pirates player. Roberto Clemente was 36%. That's not as much as we expected. I need to be up there. I don't know if it was going to be above 30%, though. Mm -hmm. Ichiro? Yeah. For all-star born outside the U.S., 6%. Yeah, that just shows you how much this game has grown. When you see 6% as a high for a single box. Yeah. That's really good. Very impressive. Um, Jose Ramirez, 12% for uh, the Guardians. Also. Yeah, I didn't want to do Jose Ramirez. I thought that was too given. Yeah, Shane Weaver was a good pick. And then I would have guessed probably, I don't know. I probably would have guessed Will Smith instead of Mookie Betts for my All-Star, but Mookie Betts six, mm -hmm. uh, was the uh, 10% for Dodgers All-Star. Um, yeah, that. Let's see who else did I have in mind. Fernando Valenzuela. Mm -hmm. uh, Matt Kemp. Ooh, Matt Kemp. Adrian Gonzalez was also another in that process as well. Mm -hmm. That would have been a good one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Final date of Black History Month here. Jackie Robinson for the Dodgers, 68%. Larry Doby, 47%. And uh, Minnie Minoso, 51%. There you go. Pretty solid from you, Brevin, as well. Once again, 7 out of 9 on today's Leap Day Immaculate Grid. Mm-hmm. Baseball Grid number 333 for our trivia here today. And wrapping up our show, uh, that's going to do it here on Down the Line. Uh, we talked a lot today um, when we got down into our fast five here once again. We also broke down the latest in the NBA before getting into our fair or foul segment, three up, three down. Um, we took a break here and we had our second half, which we just discussed here. All things Major League Baseball, including our immaculate grid for trivia and our divisional preview. As always, uh, we broke down the NL Central this week. We will be back with another preview next week, so stay tuned for that. But for now, that's going to do it here for our show on uh, Leap Day here once again, Thursday, February 29th. Wrapping it up just after 3.30 here on the West Coast in the afternoon. My name is Kyle Betts and for Brevin Honda. Thank you so much for joining us here and listening to episode number 142 of Down the Line.